If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. That's page 948 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, if you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Merry Christmas. John chapter 6, again, beginning in verse 60. What is some of the most difficult news you've received recently? What's the hardest thing you've heard as of late? Perhaps you were informed that you're being fired or that promotion has been given to someone else. Maybe some kind of important application was denied. Someone you love will not be joining you for Christmas. Your beloved college football team missed the playoffs. They're just not as good as you thought. Or Alabama. We're talking about Alabama. (laughs) News can be difficult to digest for different reasons. You probably heard that on December 5th of this year, researchers at the Ignition Facility in California fired 192 lasers producing 2.05 megajoules of energy at a tiny cylinder holding a pellet of frozen deuterium and tritium. These are like heavier forms of hydrogen. The pellet then compressed and generated temperatures and pressures intense enough to cause the hydrogen inside it to fuse. It created a blaze that lasted less than a billionth of a second. Notably, the Fusing atomic nuclei released 3.15 megajoules of energy, which was more than was used to heat that little pellet. Okay, why don't you explain it to me like I'm an eight-year-old. Scientists achieved fusion, the process of combining two lighter nuclei to form a single heavier nucleus. When these lighter atoms fuse, they release a small part of their combined mass energy. Okay, now why don't you explain to me like I'm five. (laughs) Most of us can only understand what happened on the most elementary level, if even that. It's difficult news because grasping it exceeds most of our knowledge and intellectual capacity. If some of us gave our entire lives to studying this, we would not understand much more. It's hard news because it's hard to understand Now, some news is hard to receive because the consequences are overwhelming. A hospital calls to notify you that your father has passed. An unexpected bill comes in the mail that you don't have the money to pay. Some news is hard to receive still because it offends. A friend of yours, someone you love and trust, they inform you that your breath stinks. You know it's true. But for less than a billionth of a second, your heart hates them. (laughs) Your professor gives you a failing grade. A police officer writes you a speeding ticket. Your doctor warns you that not only are you seriously ill, but it's because of your lifestyle habits. Offensive. The most insulting information implicates you in some kind of wrongdoing where you probably think yourself to be innocent. Scripture contains the most wonderful truths, the highest of promises, the most dignity-affirming statements. 
Scripture revives the soul, it enlightens the eyes, it makes us wise for salvation, and it contains some of the most offensive news you will ever hear in your entire life. Because it holds up an unfiltered mirror to you. Scripture does not give you Photoshop. It confronts us with the awful reality that apart from Christ and His Spirit's work of recreation, Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, we are unrighteous, we do not understand God, we do not seek God, we are worthless, we lack the ability to do good, our throats are an open grave moving straight from our hearts to the depths of hell, we are lying, cursing, bitter, bloodshedding, ruinous, wretches that hate peace and do not fear the holy God under whose judgment we sit. Offensive. That's just 10 verses in Romans chapter 3. Harder to hear than someone rambling about fusion. Scripture offends, it can at least. Its messengers have often been understood as offensive. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, famous or infamous sermon, depending on how you think about it. I read it in high school, a public high school in the 11th grade. We were studying it as a piece of literature. It's not just famous as a sermon, it's famous as literature. Edwards wrote this illustrating what we just heard. He says, there are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire if it were not for God's restraints. That is, in our flesh is the same impulse, capacity, desire that is found in all the vilest sinners in hell. If not for God's constant restraint, I don't care what you look like or where you're from, we would join in on the worst of humanity's atrocities. Man-stealing and molesting and murdering. It is God who keeps people from being all that they want to be. Offensive. It's not just what lies in us. It's what sin deserves. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Edwards goes on in the same sermon, warning non-Christians about their fate, simply using the same kind of language you would find in the Bible that would no doubt offend our modern ears. He writes, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Offensive. What Edwards is getting at in the sermon, the first half of his sermon in particular, is that the sinner right now, not at death, but right now, already deserves the fullness of God's righteous judgment. And that they can do nothing on their own to turn God's anger into pleasure. And nothing but God's sovereign will is keeping them from what they deserve at every moment of every day. Offensive. Incredibly offensive. Unless, of course, it's only the first part of what will become good news. Here's the thing about difficult news. It not only reveals new information, 
it tells you something about the person who's hearing it. You can learn a lot about someone as you watch them respond to difficult news. I can recall the English teacher of mine who assigned that reading in high school mocking Edwards and that well-known sermon. She heard the news. She scoffed that anyone could believe something so stupid, so vile, so archaic. Maybe you feel the same way. The first time that Edwards preached that sermon, people were screaming at him. You might think, it's not hard to imagine. They weren't screaming at him because they hated him. He was preaching to a congregation maybe this size, maybe half the size. People were screaming and fainting. They were wailing. They were so overcome with their guilt and their fear of God's justice that they were yelling out to Edwards to stop. We can't take it anymore. It was as though they, like Isaiah, were transported into the holy and awesome presence of God and were undone. They were unraveled by the thought of God's anger toward their sin. They just wanted to know what must we do to be saved. Sermons like these from preachers like Edwards led to the Great Awakening where masses were converted in New England in the 18th century. What a different response than my high school teacher. Same news, two different responses. This is offensive and I have offended God. Why do some people only hear the offense of the gospel? While others hear the same news, but what would offend is drowned out by the overwhelming news that God, in his loving kindness, gave up his son to save us. Why do some acknowledge their wrongs against God, stagger over his love, the thought that he would condescend so low to lift us up that we might feast with him, while others simply scoff? Jesus has been preaching a sermon in John chapter 6 that we've been following. His numbers are going to dwindle from something like 5,000 to 12. One sermon. He goes from mega church to core group meeting. (laughs) Why? More simply put, why do some hear good news while others only hear bad? Keep that in mind as we read the text. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Put differently, why do they accept it? In lieu of points this morning, we'll ask and answer two questions from the text. First, why do some reject the gospel? Answer, the word offends their flesh. Second question, why do some receive the gospel? Answer, the spirit overcomes their flesh. Why do some reject the gospel? The word offends their flesh. Why do some receive the gospel? The spirit overcomes their flesh. And then we'll actually see a case study in the text in Peter and Judas who give us two very different responses to Jesus' words. First, why do some reject the gospel? The word offends their flesh. Beginning there in verse 60, you can look at the text. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? This teaching is hard, not difficult to understand. We're not talking nuclear fusion. You don't need 60 years, three degrees, and a lab coat to figure out what Jesus has been talking about. This teaching is hard because it repulses the flesh. It scandalizes the mind. It, verse 61, offends. Who can accept it? Who would even want to accept it? What is this teaching that is so unpleasant that Jesus will lose almost all of his followers after one sermon? Well, we have to back up a bit. Jesus, by my count in the sermon we've been in, John chapter 6, He's made at least seven claims about himself that will offend his Jewish hearers. Seven of them. First one's in verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, in a way that suggests he's applying the name of God to himself. This will become more clear the further we move into the book of John. It's a part of seven larger I am statements. Verse 40, Jesus puts himself at the center of salvation when he says it's those who believe in the Son who have eternal life. Verses 37 and 39, Jesus stresses the sovereignty of God and salvation. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me. He says, I will lose no one or none. Verse 44, Jesus stresses human sickness and moral inability because of sin. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verses 47 through 51, Jesus claims to be greater than Moses and that all of Israel's history in Scripture is pointing toward him. It's all about him. But Jesus makes two other self-identity claims that really make them boil. John even tells us this is what they grumble over. The first one is his origin. Look back at verse 41. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They go on, right? They're like, this is Joseph and Mary's son. All of a sudden, he wants us to think he's from heaven. 
Imagine knowing somebody your entire life. You were at daycare with them, elementary school with them, you were at their wedding, and all of a sudden they tell you they're from the moon. You're thinking, really? Or maybe you knew them when they were a baby, you visited in the hospital. They're saying, we know, we've been to his house, we know his parents, and now he's telling us he's from heaven. That's the first thing, his origin. And second, the second thing that makes them grumble is what Jesus requires of us if we are to have eternal life. It's belief, but it's the way that Jesus describes belief because in the most grotesque metaphor possible, he's stressing what exactly it is that we're believing and receiving in Christ. Verse 53, Jesus says to them, Truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus means, as we saw, is not that we are to eat his flesh physically. Rather, we are to believe in Jesus, the whole Jesus. We receive his whole person and his works. And apart from receiving him by faith, the whole of him, including his lacerated flesh, the well that flowed from his side, apart from receiving all of that, we do not have life, period. Jesus' message offends because it tells us that our sins are such an offense to God that the only way we could be forgiven and freed is if the God of life himself came down to die in our place. The cross tells us what we deserve. It offends the flesh. Jesus makes all these statements about himself in John chapter 6. They're all telling the same scandalous story. That God himself became a man to bleed on behalf of criminals. Crimes that they committed against him. And if you want to believe in Jesus, you have to take all of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his rule. You must receive the whole of Christ and you do so by faith. There is no other way. They say this teaching is hard. Who can receive it? Why would someone even want to believe this? Now Jesus knows what they're thinking. He responds, verse 61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Now, I think if we're being honest, there's nothing shocking about Jesus' words being offensive. I think we get that. But what ought to suck the air out of us is that it's Jesus' disciples who are grumbling. Look at verse 61 again. It's his disciples. If you look back at the very beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus sits down on a mountain with his disciples. Then the crowds come to him. Jesus has an interaction with the crowds. He's telling them, you're not really interested in me as your king, but your butler. And his disciples are like, ooh, they're back there. They're on Jesus' side. Next, we move Jesus having an interaction with the Jews, the religious leaders. They're the ones grumbling. At some part in the exchange, the disciples start siding with the Jews and turning on Jesus. His disciples. Now, not the 12. We'll see them addressed in a minute. But these are Jesus' committed followers. People who understand themselves to be his people. They identify as Christ's followers, his 
disciples. They've been with him for some time. They've seen the signs. They've heard the teaching. They've benefited from his kindness. They have been following him up until a point. If you look at verse 66, you'll see most of them will turn away from Jesus. They no longer accompany him. Here is, I think, the really haunting kicker. They stop following Jesus not because they're being persecuted, not as they're being deceived by some other empty philosophy. It's as Jesus is pressing further into the gospel. It's as Jesus is unfolding the news about God becoming a man to be bloodied for sins. It's as they hear the gospel that they say, that's not my Messiah. That's not good news to me. My Jesus knows I'm messy, but he wouldn't call me sinful. My Jesus actually does want to take Jerusalem with me. Jesus knows they're offended. He's going to put before them a piece of evidence. Now think about the last time you were in a debate with someone. Not just arguing about something silly. You're in a debate, and you're in a debate where someone actually comes to adopt the other side. You or them. First thing I can tell you is you weren't on the internet. Okay? Right? You're having an actual conversation with each other. You're laying forth arguments. People are putting forth evidence. Someone puts something forth that's too difficult to overcome, and so they're persuaded. With integrity, you became persuaded. You said, oh, I see, the world is not flat. Now, Jesus, he knows they're offended. He's going to give them a piece of evidence that should overcome this obstacle, but it's only going to increase their offense. Verse 62, again, Jesus knows they're offended. He says, then what if, what if? What if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, you don't believe you need to believe in my bloodied flesh for the forgiveness of sins. Like what if you not only saw me dead on the cross, but you were there when the stone rolled? Like you saw it. You saw the stone roll as life springs victorious. Would you believe then? You don't believe I'm bread come from heaven. What if you were there in Acts chapter 1 as a cloud took me away? You saw the heavens crack before you. You see all of heaven rejoicing to receive its son. Would you believe then? Jesus is asking, what is the threshold you need to believe in me? Think about someone that you've been sharing the gospel with and praying for for years now. What is it that you think they need to move from unbelief to belief? Maybe you've even thought, if only blank would happen, they would come to understand. If I could just help them understand, this is why there are so many hypocritical Christians or bad churches. If I could just put one more proof before them of the resurrection. If I could give them a compelling answer to the problem of evil. If I could try a different approach or give them a different book. If only they would hit rock bottom. If they were so desperate, finally they'd turn to Jesus. What if they saw Jesus resurrected from the grave, ascending to heaven to receive glory, honor, and power? Would they believe then? The answer is no. These people have seen the signs. They've been in his presence. They've heard his teaching. They themselves have experienced his goodness, his wisdom, his power. 
it's not enough to move them from death to life. Jesus is asking, what's it going to take for you to believe in me? Do I need to take you on a field trip to heaven? Jesus is putting forth what should, what ought to overcome their offense, but it will not. There is no sign that can create faith. There is no argument that can give spiritual understanding to the unregenerate. Not even Jesus going to heaven before their very eyes would do it. Why? Even the most miraculous sign does not remove the obstacle. There is no resurrected Christ apart from the bloodied Christ. There is no exalted Jesus apart from the humiliated Jesus. You cannot participate in his glory unless you embrace his gore. You must feast upon his bloodied flesh. You see, the ascension would do very little for the flesh when you have to look through the cross to see it. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying we don't answer the objections of our friends and family members. I'm not saying our deeds before them don't matter. God uses means to produce ends. That's how he works. We should study people and problems. We should answer questions. We should do so with compassion and wisdom. We should most of all pray. We should know that unless God acts first and decisively, there will be no life or acceptance of the message. If it's left to the sinner, they will always choose sin. Why? The flesh is offended by the gospel. Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew and the Gentile. What if you saw me ascend? Would it be enough? The answer is no, and here's why. Verse 63. The Spirit is the one who gives flesh. Not flesh. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. You see, unless the Spirit gives life first, it wouldn't matter for the non-Christian or us before we were Christians, it wouldn't matter if we were transported to heaven and beheld Christ reigning in the splendor of his glory. We would not bow a knee to him. We wouldn't trust him. We wouldn't embrace him. There would be no reliance or repentance or affection or allegiance. None at all. Why? The flesh does not help. It's of no help at all. It doesn't even contribute a little. Brothers and sisters, how much did you aid God in your salvation? How much did you help out? None at all. The Spirit did not give us an alley-oop. Dead people don't make layups. Verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. Now to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to know what he means by flesh. Flesh, in the way that it's being used here, is sinful human nature. It's human nature turned away from God and turned in on itself. Here's the key to understanding this, though. Flesh is one way of speaking about the entire person, the entire non-Christian person, that is, us before the Spirit gave us life. It's not like before we were Christians, we were 50% flesh, 40% heart, 
10% will. Like the spirit just had to hack away till it got down to Michelangelo, no, David. Hack away till he got down to the good stuff so that we could finally receive. The flesh isn't speaking about one part of the non-Christian, but the whole person from a particular angle. Them turned away from God in on themselves. Apart from the spirit recreating us, we were dead cold. The flesh does not help at all. We heard this in our scripture reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The person without the spirit does not receive what comes from God's spirit because it is foolishness to him. It's stupid to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. Paul writes also Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh, Paul writes, cannot please God. Taken together, what is the flesh? The fleshly person does not receive God's word. They do not and cannot understand God's word. They do not and cannot submit to God's law. And they do not and cannot please God. Their rebellion is total. Such that if they saw Christ blasting into space, it wouldn't move them to belief. As we saw, I think it was in my last sermon, the deficiency is not with God. This is how sick we've made ourselves with sin. Like someone who has killed their own lungs with tobacco or ruined their heart with a grotesque diet. Someone who has rotted themselves out on heroin. The sinner has killed themselves on sin. They can hear the pleas, the warning, the offer. They simply do not care. People need the Spirit to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. The flesh does not help at all, not even a little. The Spirit doesn't wait for us to make the first move. Conversely, He didn't take us 99% of the way waiting for us to give us the last jolt of life. He didn't connect most of the dots for us waiting for us to get the last T. The flesh does not contribute. It doesn't help at all. In fact, it would harm the process. It would be like taking clothes to your dry cleaner and asking them to use 99% suds, 1% feces. They would tell you, that's not going to help. Not only is it not going to help, it's going to make it worse. Your clothes will be dirtier after. The flesh does not help at all. This is why, verse 64, some of the disciples don't believe this is why, verse 65, some can't come unless it's granted by the Father. It's why 61, seeing the ascension itself would not be enough. It's why, 66, most will turn away from him. It's why, 71, Judas will betray his king. The flesh is so hostile to God, so turned in on itself. Isaiah 6.10 says that hearts are hardened, ears are dull, their eyes are blind. The word of God is before them and they don't hear him. The light of the world is in their midst, and they do not and cannot see him. Now, to be clear, it's not that the non-Christian doesn't have a choice. If you were converted later in life, think about to your own conversion, especially if you grew up where you heard the gospel over and over and over again. You heard it, 
you chose no. You heard it, you chose sin. You heard it, you made a choice, and then one day, something happens. What? Is it that you became more moral, more intelligent, more humble? No, the Spirit gave life. The flesh was no help at all. You see, God in his loving kindness breathed life where there was death, love where there was hatred, trust where there was resentment. The Spirit gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Now notice Jesus has offended his disciples on this whole issue of his origin. And rather than backing away from the offense, Jesus presses in. Like he must have missed all the modern memos on how to build a following. Nobody's passing out Jesus as my homeboy shirts in Galilee today. You would go broke. But it's not that Jesus is trying to offend them. He's simply double tapping on their hearts and revealing what's there. Jesus presents the gospel. He explains the gospel. And in doing so, he reveals that they never actually believed the gospel. Here's the thing. People will often walk with Jesus as long as they like what he's saying and doing for them. The second he begins to offend them, well, verse 66, from that moment many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Got to be one of the saddest verses in all of scripture. Not the crowds, not the Jewish leaders, many of his disciples. If Jesus had a membership directory, it would be them. The visitors have come and gone. The other leaders left too. We're talking about those who would have thought themselves to be in Jesus' church. Brothers and sisters, don't think that we will be immune to this. The longer that we walk together, as long as we faithfully preach the gospel those we called brothers and sisters will abandon not only us, but Christ. But in abandoning Jesus, they reveal, we see it in verse 64, that they never actually believed in Christ from the start. John, the same writer, would later write to churches experiencing a very similar exodus. He's writing from experience. First John chapter 2, he tells them, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belonged to us. No doubt Jesus is grieved, but he's not shocked. If he's discouraged, it's about the hearts of men, but not his mission. Jesus already told us, John chapter 3, verse 6, those born of the flesh are flesh. The spirit has to give life. In preaching the gospel, Jesus has simply peeled back all the false professors. Why? The gospel offends their flesh. This brings us to our second question. Why then do some receive the gospel? Why do some receive the gospel? The spirit overcomes their flesh. The spirit overcomes their flesh. If the Flesh is no help at all if it does not seek God, if it does not understand God, if it doesn't submit to God, if it cannot do any of those things, if witnessing Jesus' own ascension would not be enough to move us to faith, how can anyone come to believe in Jesus? The Spirit must 
overcome their flesh. That is, God must do for us what we could not and would not do for ourselves. Where there is death, God must give life. Where there is flesh, God must recreate. Where there is hatred, God must give love. Where there is distrust and rebellion, God must give the gifts of faith and repentance. And this is exactly what God does. The Spirit is the one who gives life. Brothers and sisters, is there any question through the first six chapters of this book about who is responsible for our salvation? Will we have any room to boast before God on the day of judgment? Even a little. As we saw verse 37, the Father in his loving kindness gives a people to his Son. The Son then at the fullness of time comes to rescue us. Verse 39, the Son loses not even a single one. Not one name given to him will be left behind. He didn't come to try. As Alex reminded us on Wednesday, he will save his people from their sins. He will not get a high percentage. It will be mission accomplished and it's never been in doubt. How do the dead in flesh with dull ears and blind eyes come to understand the gospel? God gives and he gives and he gives 44, he draws us to the Son. Verse 65, he grants that we come to the Son, and he does so by his Spirit. To suggest anything else is to suggest that the flesh actually helped a little bit. That what the Father granted, gifted to us, is in fact actually a little bit of a reward. Brothers and sisters, salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. God chooses and he woos us and he draws us and he recreates us and he keeps us, he protects us, he sustains us, he'll glorify us. God gives and he gives and he gives until he gets us home and he will. It is not in doubt. Brothers and sisters, hear the offense of the gospel drowned out by the overwhelming love of God. We are the ones who offended him deserving of judgment, and yet receiving riches. As we sing, on the path to hell, now running to heaven, once dead, now alive, because of him. Brothers and sisters, left to our own devices, we would abandon him. Left to our own wills, we would spurn him. Left to our old hearts, we would hate him. Given the chance, we would rip him from his throne. Given the chance, the son gets off himself and comes to die. It's the most wonderful, the most unthinkable exchange that the God of life dies that we, the dead, might live. The spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, then passes through our defiled hearts and breathes life. That's mercy. It's mercy. We offended him and he saved us. Jesus goes on explaining when and where the spirit moves and breathes. Look at verse 63. Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. That is Jesus' words are the vehicle for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit doesn't work independently of the Son. 
The Son doesn't work independently of the Spirit. The one God works all things for the salvation of his people. It's as the word is preached that the Spirit gives life, drawing those the Father has given to the Son. It's as we sang earlier today, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Brothers and sisters, as you are praying for your non-Christian family members, as you're answering your coworkers' questions, as you're living a faithful and repentant life before your children, do not forget to preach the gospel. The flesh is no help at all. The spirit gives life and he does so where the word is preached. I love how one commentator describes it. He says this verse tells us how God's spirit gets into human beings through Jesus' words. And reciprocally, it tells us how God's word gets into human beings through the spirit using Jesus' words. Brothers and sisters, we want to be people of the spirit and the word. We should be cherishing the word, guarding the word, reading the word, hearing the word, studying the word, and preaching the word, delighting it and obeying it. Where the word is preached and received in faith, the spirit is at work. No word, no spirit. Brothers and sisters, if you want to be spirit-filled, you should fill yourself with the word. If you want a daily experience with the Spirit, read your Bibles. Let Him whisper to you the words of Christ. It's by His words, John 1, that all things were created. It's by His words that water was turned into wine. It's by His words that death is stopped, that the lame are healed. It's by His words the dead will rise. It's by his words today that the Spirit continues to work. I wonder how many of us are tempted to think that God's word is a killjoy. Jesus says his words are life itself. It's as we heard the word preached that the Spirit breathed life unto us the first time. It's as we continue to hear the word preached that the Spirit sustains us in life. You should make it your aim to live every day and to do so by the word of God. It's in the preaching of the word that the spirit moves to give life. So why do some reject the gospel? It's because the word offends their flesh. Why do some come to believe and receive the gospel? It's because the spirit overcomes their flesh. Giving life where there was death, drawing and wooing and winning them to the Son as the word is preached. Now what we'll see quickly is a case study in Peter's confession and a prediction about Judas. Two very different responses to the gospel. Verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? I wonder how you hear Jesus' words. You don't want to go away too, do you? Jesus is not seeing his numbers dwindle and is now turning to the 12 in a panic. Like he hosted a party, everybody's leaving early. (laughs) You guys aren't leaving too, we still got charades. 
No, recall what we've heard from John 6. Jesus knows the Father has given a people to him, that they all will go to him. He knows that he will not lose even one. He knew from the beginning, verse 64, those who didn't believe and the one who would betray him. Jesus is not surprised about anything. He's not asking the disciples to learn some information he doesn't yet have. He's not asking for himself. He's asking for them. The cornerstone, the stumbling block has been laid. The offense of the gospel has been exposed, as are its gifts. Now Jesus is double tapping to see what's on their hearts. We get one of the most beautiful confessions from Peter. Peter responds there, verse 68. Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. These are not the words of the flesh, of John 3, 6, flesh from flesh, but one who has been born of the Spirit. Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 16, that Peter's confession was not revealed to him by flesh and blood, but by the Father. It's come by the Spirit through the preaching of the Word. Are you going to turn away too? Lord, to whom would we go? It's not that Peter can't fill his time with other things. No work prospects, no shows to finish, no other dreams to pursue, no hobbies, no books. No, no, no. Where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. As Peter will one day say in Acts chapter 4, filled by the Spirit, salvation is found to no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Where would we go? Who but the Father would choose people as wicked as us? Where would we go? Who but you, the Son, would bleed for our sins? Where would we go? Who but the Spirit would give life where there is death? Where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where, where would we go? Brothers and sisters, I wonder, where are you tempted to go? Who is competing with God in your heart? Who but Jesus has your ear? Is someone or something enticing you with a false promise of a better life? If you stopped going to church on Sunday altogether, what would you do? Where would you go? Where would we go? Is it as we sang earlier, all I have is Christ? That's what Peter's saying. All I have is Christ. Where would we go? As we'll soon sing, there is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my father's plan. The son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel, oh, what a peace, my highest joy, my deepest need. Now and forever, he is my light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is one gospel to which I cling, all else I count as loss. For there, when justice and mercy meet, he saved me on the cross. No more I boast of what I can bring, no more I carry the weight of sin. For he has bought me from death to life. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where would we go? We have, as a church have come to confess what the church has confessed throughout the ages that Jesus is the Holy One of God. 
the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true light from true God, begotten, not made. And yet for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the Holy Spirit, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man for our sake. He was crucified, suffered death, was buried, and rose again. We confess that he has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory for us, his people. Where would we go? It's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or nothing. Peter gives this beautiful confession of Christ, and then Jesus replies with what is a kind of jarring response. Verse 70. Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Now, I'm not sure. Maybe Peter's looking around. Thousands are leaving. He's thinking the twelve of us are staying. Maybe the flesh helps a little bit. Maybe Jesus is reminding him, no, 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 Peter. Even as all these people are leaving, I chose you, the twelve. And yet he goes on, one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Now think about how deflated the apostles must already be feeling. Everybody's gone. It looks like their ministry's a failure. Like, I left my business for this. And then Jesus explains why. Oh, they're leaving because they're spiritually dead. All they can do is choose sin. You're not really feeling any comforted. And then now Jesus comes into the inner circle and he tells them, and one of you is the devil who will betray me. One of them who was with him from the beginning, who saw virtually every sign, every healing, every act of kindness, who heard the teaching, who was personally loved and cared for by Jesus. Their boys, one of them will betray him. They will carry out the devil's work. Someone they laughed with, someone they ate with, someone they sang with, someone they served with. Someone in this group will betray me. Why? The flesh is of no help at all. It's not just that the flesh is of no help, it's that the flesh is even harmful. It's hateful. It's hell bound. Again, Edward said there are in the souls of wicked men those hellish principles, capacities, desires reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire if it were not for God's restraints. God is simply giving Judas the desires of his heart. He will betray his king for his true God, which is silver. Now here's what really shakes me about the text as I was reading it. Verse 64, as you look at it again, Jesus knew from the beginning who did and didn't believe, who would betray him. Verse 70, here Jesus is telling the 12 that one of them is a devil and would betray him, but he doesn't tell them who. They're all left wondering, could it be me? Jesus is not being cruel. Jesus is giving them what they need to persevere until the end. On the one hand, they've heard that the Son is bread come from heaven to give life to all, that the Father gives a people to the Son, that the Son welcomes them all, that the Son will lose not one. Now don't be mistaken, Judas is not an exception to this rule. He's not the one that got out of the Father's hand. No, the Son will not lose 
1. They hear that God will save his people from their sins, period. They hear what we would call perseverance of the saints. That God will ensure that we, his people, make it home. And they also hear, one of you will betray me, and he doesn't tell them who. They have to live in tension until the night of Christ's betrayal. Why? I think Jesus is giving them precisely what they need to persevere. They will have to daily trust Jesus and fight sin. Daily walk by the Spirit and not the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to live in this tension as well. Knowing that all those who thrust themselves upon Christ will be saved, that he will lose not a single one. And at the same time knowing that if our flesh had its way, we would betray Jesus for next month's rent. We should be properly distrustful of our own sinful inclinations. We should hate our flesh as though our lives depend upon it. The author of Hebrews gives a very similar warning. Hebrews chapter 2, he says, he's writing this to a church. The author is, watch out, brothers and sisters, that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we firmly, if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We should be properly distrustful of our own sin, knowing that it seeks to deceive us and to turn us away from the living God, just as Judas did, just as the disciples turned away. We can also take comfort knowing that Jesus speaks to us today from his word, that his spirit is moving right now in this place, and that, as we'll see in John 10, Jesus' people hear his word, they know his voice, they love his word, they submit to his word. We gather even now because we believe that Jesus' words are life and spirit. Where else would we go? We must actively cling to the truth of the gospel. We have come to confess that Jesus is the Holy One of God. May we cling to Christ and to him alone. Let's pray. Father, we are once again overwhelmed by your loving kindness to us. That though we deserved, though we deserved your justice and your anger, that in your love you sent your Son to give us life. We marvel at the fact that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, we pray that because of this service, because of the preaching of the word, that we would love Jesus all the more that there would be no one else to which we would go or cling, that we would believe that his words are life and spirit. We pray that your spirit would work these words into the hearts of all here who love Jesus and trust Jesus. We pray that if there are any here who do not know your son, that you would give them the gift of life today, that they would turn and trust him. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.